may be a miracle we're all still here. Is it the end of the world as we know it? That there are more cataclysmic, unforeseeable events. That this is only going to get worse. Tensions are rising across the country over vaccine mandates. We're going to have to operate in a world order where power is shared amongst many states, including many that are authoritarian. We are in a whole new world now. Let's be blunt about it. There will be individuals in regional New South Wales who choose not to be vaccinated who will lose their freedom. Global power is trying to rearrange themselves into a new global world order. Who will lead the post-pandemic world? There are those in the world who want to have this great international reset. The idea that you will own nothing, you'll be happier. New York City putting 9,000 unvaccinated city workers on unpaid leave. Well, just one day left until Judgment Day. The Vikings predicted tomorrow will be the end of the world as we know it. I don't know if you've noticed, but the world, it seems like it's upside down in a lot of ways. I mean, the news is propaganda. People invent new sexual identities every single day, it seems like. Where, where we had free speech, now people are canceled. It's the opposite of the way it should be. Michigan beat Ohio State. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I knew. I, it got a little rowdy there, yeah. It's upside down from what we're used to, right? Oh, and by the way, for you Ohio State guys, counseling is available here at the church. <laughs> Pastor Tim and Pastor Forrest would be happy to do that for you. Just schedule an appointment. Yeah, things are changing, and, and we know we, we go to the Bible for answers. I mean, if we want to know what happened yesterday, we tune in to the news. If we want to, happen, want to know what happened today, we check the internet. But if we want to know what's going to happen tomorrow, we read the Bible. And God tells us what's coming and how it's going to play out. And there's an amazing synchronization between world events today and what the Bible predicted long, long ago. And right now, we may be living in the most exciting time in human history. Um, one thing we have to know as we've been talking about this in our series, that the Bible's predictive prophecy all centers around the Jewish people, Israel, and Jerusalem. It all hinges on that. And really the binding that holds all that prophecy together is from the prophet Daniel, and he lays out world kingdoms and world events, much of which have passed now, some of which is still future. But as we look at the Jewish people, Israel and Jerusalem, just, just that, I think we take for granted the fact that something happened in history that had never happened before and was predicted in Scripture, predicted in the Bible. Before the modern nation of Israel, just simply the preservation of the Jewish people with Jewish identity was already seen by intellectuals as proof or evidence 
to support the veracity, the truthfulness of Scripture. Because that had really never been done before, if if you think about it. Though dispersed throughout the world for 1,900 years, the Jewish people never lost their identity. There's no other group of people that compares to that. Because history shows us that when people are displaced out of their homeland, they will lose their national identity in about five generations or 200 years, it'll be gone and they will be completely absorbed into the new culture. But that did not happen with the Jewish people. Not only have they survived, but the nations that persecuted them, if you remember those nations from the Bible, Moab, Ammon, Eden, and many others, they're gone. So today when we look around, we don't hear anything of a Swedish Moabite or a German Edomite, or an American Ammonite. We don't know any of those terms because those people groups do not exist anymore. But we do today have Russian Jews, German Jews, American Jews. That's what the Bible said would happen. The Jews are the only exiled people to remain a distinct people despite being dispersed to more than 70 countries for almost 2,000 years. Not only that, they're the only people to revive an ancient language and make that their spoken language of the day. That's Hebrew. Even in the first century, a lot of Jewish people didn't speak Hebrew. It's what they spoke before that in the Old Testament. But now today, Hebrew is what Jewish people speak, never been done before, reviving an ancient language after 2,000 years. So that's the people. But it's not just the people that we kind of take for granted. It's the nation of Israel. Israel was reborn as a nation in our modern history in 1948. And the rebirth of Israel is like the super sign of all predictive prophecy in the Bible. Almost every other end times prophecy hinges on the presence of the Jewish people in Israel, but the Jewish people didn't have the nation of Israel for 2,000 years. And now today, Israel is a world player. This small nation. Think about that. Israel has, nu- has nuclear weapons. Israel is like a superpower, and, and it's a country the size of New Jersey. Five Israels will fit into Ohio. That's how small Israel is, but Israel's a world player. How did that happen? How did the nation come to be? Well, it was a God thing, but historically we know it played out this way, that that with the rise of Nazism and Hitler in Germany, six million Jewish people were put to death in what we call the Holocaust, murdered. When World War II ended, there was a lot of world sympathy for the Jewish people. 
As a matter of fact, in England, as they were preparing for war and, and had some assistant by, assistance from scientists who happened to be Jewish, they actually had something called the Balfour Declaration that said, this was before the war was over, that the Jewish people should have a homeland in Palestine, which is what they called that region at that time. So when World War II ended and there was all this sympathy for the Jewish people and England had the Balfour Declaration, then England came to the people of Palestine where there were Jewish people and Arabs living there and said, hey, we want to uh, divide up the land sort of equally, more going to the Arab people. We're gonna divide up the land. It's called a partition plan and then everybody can live in peace. That the Muslim Arab or the Palestinian Arabs refused the partition plan because they knew they outnumbered the Jews. But not only that, they knew that they were surrounded by Egypt, Jordan, Lebanon, Syria, that would all support them in a war with the Jews. And so they said, no thanks to the partition plan, we are going to exterminate the Jews and drive them completely out of this country. And that began the war of independence for the Jewish people in 1947 through 49. Israel is invaded by Egypt, Jordan, Iraq, Syria, and Lebanon. That's 45 million Arabic people against 64,000 Jews 700 to 1 if you want to do the math. That's how it broke out. In the end of that, a war that lasted around two years, Israel gained 23% more land than they would have had if the Arab people would have accepted the partition plan. They actually had ended up after that war with more land than they would have had that they were agreeing to the partition plan but there still wasn't peace. In 1956, there was the Sinai War. Egypt, backed by Russia, moved a bunch of Russian equipment and Egyptian equipment into the Negev or the Sinai Peninsula, that's Israel's southern border, moved it all in in a position to attack. Israel then launched a preemptive attack by Israel and in nine days, you know, we talk about these never-ending wars. In nine days, Israel won the entire Sinai Peninsula and the Suez Canal. But they withdrew under U.S. pressure. War's over. But that wasn't it. In 1967, and the date is key because June 67, America is embroiled in Vietnam. And we've got our hands full, so to speak, as far as foreign wars are concerned. And because of that, Russia backing Syria and Egypt, and then Egypt was also leading Jordanian troops, invaded Israel. This is called the Six-Day War. The, the other one was nine days. In six days, at ceasefire, Israel gained the entire Sinai Peninsula, the Gaza Strip that we hear about all the time in the news, Gaza, the West Bank, all of Jerusalem, because before that they just had a piece of Jerusalem, 
and the Golan Heights, which is on the east side of the Sea of Galilee, high ground from which Syria had been launching attacks against Israel, shelling Israel with cannons for 20 years since their independence. Israel gained all that in six days. And that wasn't enough. In 1973, there was the Yom Kippur War. Egypt and Syria launched a surprise attack on Israel. Result of that, in 19 days, Israel won. God is protecting the nation of Israel. He said they would be regathered, and he said he would protect them. And just the modern history of Israel shows that this is the real deal, and God's word is validated. But it's not just the survival of the Jewish people, and it's not just the, the nation of Israel. It's also the city of Jerusalem that prophecy hinges on. Jerusalem today, as we know, is sacred to Christians, Jewish people, and also Muslim people, Islam. And so what we know is that now that Jerusalem since 67, 68 have had all of, that Israel's had all of Jerusalem, Israel is saying Jerusalem is our capital. But the world, not wanting to anger the League of Arab Nations, won't confirm that. Until 1995, the Congress voted overwhelmingly that I think it might have been unanimously, I mean, when does that happen? That Jerusalem should be seen as Israel's capital. And that we, America, should move our embassy from Tel Aviv, where it had been, to Jerusalem. And so the Congress says, this is a law. We move the embassy, voted on, approved overwhelmingly, from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. And then after that, the presidents that served from both parties were afraid to do it. They would not do it. They kept delaying the move. Clinton delayed the move. Bush delayed the move. Obama, in two terms, delayed the move. Until 2018, just three years ago, when Trump actually moved the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, finally doing what we said we were going to do years before, because there's so much tension in the region. That brings us up to 2018. Also, what's happened in just the last five years is for the first time in modern history, for the first time since the second century, there are more Jewish people in Israel than anywhere else in the world. What I'm saying is, before five years ago, there were more Jewish people in America than Israel. But then as more people started moving to Israel, more Jewish people, that finally shifted to today where there's about 6.2 million Jewish people in Israel, and there's about 5.7 
Jewish people in America. So right now we're seeing for the first time Israel is the center of the Jewish population. And so think about this. Israel is the only nation in the world that is surrounded by other nations who openly talk about destroying it. That's happening today. I just heard a report that, that I have not been able to verify that there's more tension right now between Israel and Iran than there has ever been. And we're going to get to that, how that plays out. All this is happening now. These other nations want to destroy it. They talk openly about it often, but they won't because of God's word. Zechariah, Old Testament prophet, 10.9 says, When I scattered them among the peoples, they will remember me in far countries, and they, with their children, will live and come back. Israel is unique as a nation. Jerusalem is unique as a city. The Jewish people are unique as a people. That's what Scripture is teaching us. And we talked about these end-time events. They all hinge on the Jewish people. And that's exactly what Daniel said. Remember? Seventy sets of seven-year periods will be for my people and the coming of the Messiah. You, and from the rebuilding of the temple, the second temple, all the way down to the coming of Jesus, you could have measured that out by the year. And it came out to 483 years. And that year is the year that Jesus rode in to Jerusalem in the triumphal entry we call Palm Sunday. But there's seven years left that are all about Israel that have not unfolded yet. We call those years of tribulation. So God's prophetic timeline hinges on Israel. So I just want to recap this. And by the way, hey, if you're new here visiting family for Thanksgiving, I'm sorry. You know, we're in the middle of something here, and so we're going to kind of blast on through. This is not the topic I would have chose for you probably, but we're going to kind of wrap everything together. Are we ready? All right, we are ready. That's great. Okay, so God's prophetic timeline, it hinges on Israel. Here's the recap. First, this doesn't involve Israel. There's something called the rapture. The rapture ends this time called the church age from the time of Christ until today. We don't know how long it's going to last, but it's when Israel's sort of off of the spotlight. The church age, that's it where we are free to share our faith and This age ends with something called the rapture when God comes to the clouds, not all the way back to earth, just in the clouds, and calls his true church, people have placed their trust in Christ alone, up to him, we will meet with Christ, and we will go with him. That's what Jesus talked about in John 14. That's what it's taught about in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and 1 Corinthians chapter 15. That's called the rapture. That rapture has to happen before the seven years begins, although people have different views about that, but we believe in a pre-tribulational rapture. After the rapture, there's a war between Israel and Gog and Magog. Gog and Magog is a series of countries that were listed by the prophet Ezekiel hundreds of years before Jesus. So that's 2,000 and whatever years before today. 
Ezekiel lists the string of countries that had absolutely nothing in common. And he said, these countries will make up this force and they will attack Israel. And so after the rapture where millions of believers around the world are gone in a blink, and also what happens at that time is the restraining force of the Holy Spirit, especially as represented in his church, is gone, things deteriorate in a heartbeat. Gog and Magog happens, and, and this could be between the rapture and tribulation or just after the tribulation starts right at the beginning. The ancient names that Ezekiel used for these areas turn out to be these in modern day times. Remember, back then, they had no connection to each other. Today, they do. Here they are. Russia with Turkey, Iran, Kazakhstan, Turkmenistan, Sudan, and Libya. Until recently, those countries had nothing to do with each other. But today we know that's Russia aligned with a coalition of Muslim nations, which we see happening right now. And as we see this rise of globalism and this war happens, the Antichrist comes onto the scene and he signs a peace treaty with Israel. He brings peace somehow. All we know about him is he's leading 10 nations from Europe. He intervenes. There's a peace treaty. Everything's good for a while. And maybe if Gog and Magog is over at that time, maybe it's easier to negotiate a peace because these countries have been defeated, all these Muslim League countries. Because not only that, there's something about the temple that happens about this time, so we're wondering if that is all linked together. That begins seven years of tribulation where God starts righteously judging the earth who has rejected his son because all the believers have been taken out. And so the scroll appears in heaven and it's sealed, seven seals, and a seal's broken and a judgment is announced. And the next seal, as you roll it down more, is broken and it, judgment is announced. And then the third seal, judgment is announced. And then the seventh seal is seven trumpets that announce seven other judgments. And then the seventh trumpet is seven bowls of God's wrath that are poured out on the earth. That all happens during those seven years of tribulation. During that time, God will raise up 144,000 Jewish evangelists, virgin men. I mean, we get some details here. Virgin male Jewish evangelists who will start spreading the word of God and his message Revelation 7, 4 says, And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. That's 12,000 from each tribe. And they paved the way for a massive revival in Israel. People can come to Christ all over, all over the globe, but in Israel, because of these evangelists, there's a massive revival. Not only are the 144,000, but we also know that Two of them, or two other witnesses, have powers like Moses and Elijah. They are 
a special set apart by God. They minister in Jerusalem for three and a half years. They become the great adversary of the other people there. And finally, they are killed. And when they are killed, the world rejoices. As a matter of fact, Scripture tells us, that was written in ancient times, Scripture tells us that when they're killed, they lay in the streets of Jerusalem for three and a half days, and the entire world sees them. Which, by the way, that wasn't possible until, what, about 50 years ago. And so the world watches them, and after in three and a half days, after three and a half days, they come back to life, and that freaks everybody out because they're still watching. And they're even exchanging presents. It becomes a holiday, and then they come back to life. And so here, that's John pointing out a prophecy, by the way, that requires satellite communication where we can see events around the world in real time. We used to not be able to do that. Then there's the midpoint of the seven years, which is probably around the time this happened. At the midpoint of the seven years, what we know that is significant there is there is a rebuilt temple on the Temple Mount. So I've been to the Temple Mount. I've been up on the Temple Mount. And there's a, a Islam, there's a mosque there, and then there's a shrine called the Dome of the Rock. That's the shiny thing. And this is, that Dome of the Rock is right where the Jewish temple used to be. But it was destroyed in the first century in 70 AD, about 40 years after Jesus was killed. So think about this. For Orthodox Jewish people, they can't practice their religion because they don't have the place to sacrifice for their sins. So in the Old Testament, God taught the whole world through the Jewish sacrificial system that sin is serious, that God doesn't wink at sin, that sin is an offense to God that must be paid for. It's a wrong that needs to be righted and the way for that to be righted without punish, punishing the people is that innocent blood would be spilt and that would be of an animal, a lamb, would be sacrificed at the temple. And that would temporarily re, it would remind people of the seriousness of their sin and temporary, temporarily cover their sins. But there was one coming who would give his blood and that would suffice for sins once and for all if we put our faith in him. But now for 2,000 years, the Jewish people, Orthodox Jews, cannot make sacrifice. They're waiting for the temple. They have all the stuff they need to build the temple, but there's all this tension over the Temple Mount. I was just mentioning as I was speaking last Sunday that some people had been killed that day at the Temple Mount. It doesn't end. But somehow, after this peace treaty that must involve the Jewish people having access, maybe because Gog and Magog war has weakened the Muslim alliance, that now the Jews are able to build their temple, three and a half year, it's standing there, and they're doing sacrifices already. Then the Antichrist double-crosses the Jewish people in the peace treaty. He goes in and he commits something called the abomination of desolation, which means he goes into the temple, he violates it, and he declares himself to be God. He puts an end to the animal sacrifices. He seats himself in the holy of holies, declaring himself to be God. 
Jesus put it this way in Matthew 24, 15. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. And then he tells him, hey, if you're a Jewish person living in Jerusalem that day, get out of there. That commences the second three and a half years where these judgments from God intensify. And so that second half of the seven years is called the Great Tribulation. Persecution against the Jewish people begins. Uh, Persecution against Christians intensifies. Non-Jewish Christians intensifies. Globalism, the Antichrist is the leader of, of the world government. And we see our world is becoming closer and closer to that. During this last pandemic, there were officials in Britain and in France who were calling for a temporary world government to oversee the nations in response to the pandemic. That is scary. That's happening in our world today. Revelation 13, 7 says, It was also given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. Talking about the Antichrist. And authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. Again, the Antichrist. And then not only is there an Antichrist, but he was joined by an ally called the false prophet or another beast in Revelation, the false prophet. And then, so the Antichrist and the false prophet along with Satan are sort of like the unholy trinity. Two men and a fallen angel. And so globalism then, under this Antichrist who started by leading a ten-nation coalition from Europe, now dominates the world. Then, with the false prophet, they mandate a mark that you have to take on your right hand or your forehead in order to buy or sell or do any kind of commerce. And the pressure's on. And then the events right before the coming of Jesus. So that that was all kind of review. And then now what sets the stage for the actual return of Christ that happens after those seven years of tribulation are over is that there's the battle of Armageddon. Armageddon just literally means Mount Megiddo. I've actually been able to stand on Mount Megiddo. Actually, there are ruins of a fortress that Solomon built thousands of years ago. And it overlooks this plain. And this is where the armies of the world will gather to defeat Israel and finally wipe out Israel as a country. The last attempt to exterminate the Jewish people. A 200 million person army comes and gathers here. And people used to read this and say, well, 200 million Nobody could produce a 200 million man army. That's crazy. So that's just, that can't be literal. It's what people said for centuries. But think about it. Just our country, just in some of our lifetimes. In 1939, prior to World War II, our military was about 330,000 people. Five years later... In 1944, it was 30 times that size. It was 11 million. So our military in five years grew by 30 times what it was to begin with. So you see what I'm saying? Well, 200 million, how do you get that? 
China right now has a military that they estimate between 2 million to some people would say just over 3 million people. That's not 200 million, that's just 2 million to over 300 million. But if they just grew 10 times, they would be over 2 million people. Not only that, India has a military that's over 2 million people. Either one of those, if they prepared for a war and just grew 10 times, we grew 30 times, they could fulfill this prophecy. Or they could join together. The point is, it's going to happen. What we used to think was impossible, now we see if that happened, that would be probable. Revelation 9, 16 says, the number of the armies of the horsemen was 200 million. I heard the number of them. And this is how I saw in the vision. Now, as I read this, I want you to remember something. Here's a man, John, writing late in the first century. He's never seen a car, never seen a tank. He's never seen a machine. And he's trying to explain with first century words what he sees in his vision. Are you ready? All right. The number of the armies of the horsemen were 200 million. I heard the number of them. And this is how I saw in the vision the horses and those who sat on them. The riders had breastplates of the color of fire and of hyacinth and of brimstone. And the heads of the horses are like the heads of lions. And out of their mouths proceed fire and smoke and brimstone. He's describing modern warfare. And then we have, as this all gets ready, and this army then descends on Jerusalem, that's what ushers in the second coming of Christ. The first coming, which is what we're going to start celebrating for the next month or so, right? We call that Christmas. Jesus comes humbly as a baby into our world as a servant and savior of the world. But Jesus said, when I come back, it will not be that way. He said before he came back, what Jesus told us in Matthew 24 is that there would be deception of false Christ. People come and say they're Jesus. That's happening, by the way, right now. There are cults in America and around the world where they say this guy is the resurrected Jesus. There'll be disputes and warfare among nations. There'll be disease and famine worldwide. Epidemics and pandemics. Just expect this to come. Believers are systematically killed. Defection of false believers, that falling away where people are like, no, yeah, I called myself a Christian, but I'm not a Christian anymore. I don't want to be killed. Declaration of the gospel will happen to the whole world. That has just now happened. Every country in the world has Christian missionaries in it. Every country has the Bible in their own language. Now, there are still a few people groups that don't have the entire Bible in their language. But as nations, that's already covered. That had never happened before. And then Jesus said, when I come back, hey, don't worry about people saying Jesus came back. Remember David Koresh? You know, whatever. Hey, there he is, there he is. This is Jesus. Jesus said, don't believe any of that. Here's how he describes his own coming, Matthew 24, 27. For just as lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. You won't have to wonder. 
Nobody will have to wonder when he comes back. Here's what he's picking it up in verse 29. He continues. This is Jesus. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then and then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Why are they mourning? Because they've set themselves up in opposition to God, killing Christ's followers. There's a time coming when the time for God's patience for justice will be over. John writes it this way in Revelation 19, 11, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in his righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses." Not the image of Jesus that we normally think about, right? His robe dipped in blood. By the way, whose blood is that? Well, he hasn't got to the battle yet. That's his own blood. He shed his blood for us so that we can escape his righteous wrath. But we have to humble ourselves to take advantage of it. He continues, and John does in Revelation 19, 19, and I saw the beast... And the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. And those two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. What's What's the sword out of Christ's mouth? It's the unchanging word of God. It's justice. And then something happens to usher in the millennium. Satan is bound for a thousand years. It's interesting because people talk about binding Satan here and binding Satan. We can't bind Satan. If we could bind Satan from this or bind Satan for a day, why not for a year? Why not for a thousand years? We can't do that. Revelation 20, verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. And after these things, he must be released for a short time. Do you remember in Jesus' ministry one time he crossed the lake and came across this guy who had a demon, a bunch of demons? And then he was going to cast them out and the demons started pleading, don't throw us into the pit, don't, don't put us in the abyss. And Jesus threw them into a herd of pigs. Do you remember any of this? This is where Satan is going to be. And then Jesus reigns. We call it the millennial kingdom. Millennium just means thousand. And believers who survive the tribulation go into the millennial kingdom. And the Bible says in the millennium, during this thousand-year reign that is coming, I believe, fairly shortly, 
will have a perfect environment, a physical environment. We'll have, it'll be a perfect physical environment, a spiritual environment. Jesus will rule as rightful king of the earth. Jerusalem will be the political center of the world, also the center of worship for the world. And it'll be a time of peace, Scripture says, and joy, Scripture says, and comfort, Scripture says, and obedience, Scripture says, and holiness, Scripture says, and truth, Scripture says. And then we will increase in our knowledge of God because Jesus will be on the throne to teach us right here on earth. But things are going to get worse before that time happens. And part of that is a moral decline that we see today. Paul, on his last letter to Timothy, in chapter 3, verse 1, writes it this way, But realize this, that in the last days difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. And we see that happening all around us. We see that increasing every single day. And it's only the restraining force of the Holy Spirit and his church that limits all those negative things that are happening in our world today. But that's going to end. We have a role to play, Scripture's saying, by following our Savior, by doing what God has called us to do, by point, pointing people to Christ. That includes all of us, that we should all live in light of his return. So that takes us to the millennium, this kingdom. Satan is bound. Jesus is ruling physically on earth. So that's it, right? That's great. That's how it ends. I mean, that's the whole deal. That's heaven, right? No, that's not. Because he's saying a thousand years it's weird to me because some people say, well, a thousand years, that's just, you know, he doesn't really mean literally a thousand years. In that one passage, the term, the phrase thousand years is repeated six times. If it were literally a thousand years, what would, he, what would John have to do to make us believe that? Six times, a thousand years, a thousand years. Because at the end of the thousand years, something amazing happens. You want to know what it is? Come back next Sunday and we'll talk about that. Let's stand together for prayer. Father God in heaven, we thank you for your goodness. We recognize, Lord, that we only exist by your grace. Lord, that you love us even though we don't deserve it. That you've made a way for us to be cleansed and forgiven through the blood of your son. And God, we thank you for that greatest gift. And God, we pray that anyone in this room that doesn't know you, in that kind of a personal way, they haven't put their faith in Jesus, Lord, that they would, even today. Lord, thank you for loving us like that.
Thank you for telling us the end because we know in the end, your control. In the end, you win. In the end, our battle is fought by you. Thank you, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.